Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Something is happening in Europe. We've been used for so many decades to Germany being this peace-loving economic powerhouse at the heart of Europe. Somehow the European Union has depended on it. You might even say the whole globalization era depended on it. It was this post-politics, post-history, Angela Merkel, technocratic atmosphere that emanated from Germany. Suddenly that no longer seems so certain. The alternative for Deutschland, the AFD party, is rising. The latest polls, they score over 20%. Politics is fractious. It feels like economics and politics are really changing, and that is going to affect all of us, both in Europe and perhaps the wider West. Wolfgang Munchau is, by our account, perhaps the best observer of European politics writing in the English language. For his sins, he used to write a column for the Financial Times, but throughout that period, he was a brave and independent minded voice who managed to avoid the herd mentality. Now he's branched out, he runs something called Euro Intelligence, and he's here in the studio to help us understand what is really happening in Germany. Welcome, Wolfgang. Well, Freddie, thank you for inviting me. The Alternative für Deutschland, AFD. There's a lot written about it. I saw a piece this morning that describes them as fascists. There's a lot of paranoia, a lot of fear that somehow Germany is reverting to its far-right past, etc. What's your kind of overall take on what's happening there? If you look at the European far-right parties, uh, the AFD is quite special. Most of the far-right parties are led by strong leaders. Le Pen, Maloney, they are basically shaped, Gerd Wilders in the Netherlands, they're shaped in the image of their leaders. Uh, that's not the case of the AFD. So if you wanted to draw some historic barrels with the Nazis in particular, they, they are very different in that respect. Mm. There isn't a leader. I often forget the name of their leaders. They have two joint uh, party chiefs. Uh, and uh, and they keep changing, and there are lots of you know internal rebellions against them. This is a party that's very insurrectional against its own leaders uh, in the past. But they are on the far right. They are not a. What do you mean by far right? I've got to call you up on that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm always hesitant to use that term because what what's the difference between far right and just right? They have goals that I would would consider um, uh, you know incompatible with constitutional law, for example. One of the goals they recently pronounced was not only Germany's exit from the EU, which is you know, legal, obviously there is a legal procedure for that, 
but they wanted to the, the disbandment of the EU, which is obviously not something that a country can do because you ultimately, I mean, the only way to do this is for tanks, basically. Some uh, members of the party have been, been outwardly anti-Semitic. That has been, been, been something that, that has happened. I wouldn't call the party officially anti-Semitic. It's not like this is an anti-Semitic platform, mm. but uh, it's a party that has, it also has neo-Nazis in them. In a way, that's true even of you know, Nigel Farage's parties in the past. It's, it's a common thing it's with right-wing parties. You always get the, the more, let's say, colourful characters tend to that's right. sort of aggregate there. Is it fair to judge a whole party or a whole movement, or in the case of the AFD, 20% of the German population who say they might support them, by just those few characters no, there. No, no, I think you can't. It's not helpful to to characterize any party with with sort of a, a you know with, with a word or with an adjective. They are on the far right. That is that is clear. They're not they're not a conservative party. They are on the far right. Would I call them fascist? No, I don't call Maloney a fascist either because it doesn't help me. It doesn't help me understand what's going on. Uh, she obviously has roots in the far right in the fascist movement in Italy. That is that was that was a fact. But she has moved away, and you know, at, you know what we see, she moves from the center right. Uh, she governs from the center right. The AfD is different in, in in the respect that it doesn't that its policies are very different. For example, from Meloni, if you take Meloni as sort of the the other far right party, well, the one that actually succeeded to get into government, they are they want Germany to leave NATO, they want Germany to leave the EU naturally and the euro, of course. So the original energy for the AFD yeah. comes out of the immigration issue. That's and right. that was after this big one million plus refugees right. arrived after Syria in 2015 and Angela Merkel did her whole Wir schaffen das, we can cope with this, we can welcome all these people. That was very controversial. Where is the immigration issue now? So as you rightly said, 2015 was the moment when, when, when it, it also was the moment its support grew. By the 2021 um, uh, election, it had already ebbed away. The party has has been mostly in the news in that period. After after sort of had its initial boost of support, it was mostly occupied with internal strifes and power power struggles among among party members. It only ended up at 10 percent at the 21 election, which is only two years ago. What happened between 21 and today in this two years is that uh, the party doubled its vote. Uh, overall, not much in West Germany, but dramatically in East Germany. I mean, to go from 10% to 20% in all of Germany means it, it has to do extremely well in East Germany. And in some parts of East Germany, the party is now the largest party. Um, it has now won its first mayoral election. It has won its first regional election. So there's a regional president now from the AFD. So it starts to win election. It was previously, it was like, you know, a system of proportional representation. When you are 20% and nobody wants to do coalitions, reform coalitions with you, you have a lot of MPs and councillors sitting around, but you're never, you're never in power. That is now starting to change. They now have their first, uh, you know, people in, in some in office, basically. The East German thing is worth understanding because that's obviously a poorer part of the country. In some ways, you've written that it's parallel to you know, flyover country or the industrial heartlands that have been suffering over recent decades in places like the US and in Britain and other countries. So actually, that suggests that economics is a big part of the appeal. This is the reason why, why the AFT is now gaining support. It is a very clear, I mean, we've, we've looked at 
um, uh, you know, there's Germany's economic performance, which is weak at the moment, which for reasons that, that, that have to do with Germany's economic model. I mean, you have to, in your introduction described Germany as an economic powerhouse. The general storyline is Germany did really well until recently, now it's doing really badly what's happened. But what, what happened in Germany, in the German economy, the, the, the difficulties that we're seeing today, the roots of that date back a long time ago. Germany made itself dependent on Russian gas. As a result, it also made itself dependent on industry because that was a stronger sector. It had huge export surpluses. Germany had a current account surplus for many years for 8% of GDP, which for a large industrial country is just mind-bogglingly large. That was made possible, is it fair to say, by the European Union, by the structures that that put in place? That's right. We have an internal market. Also, the currency helped Germany because what, what what Germany always does when it is in a monetary union with others, it tries to obtain a competitive advantage by reducing wages so that your, your costs relative to others are lower and, and they can't adjust because the exchange rate is fixed. Uh, so for Germany, the fixed exchange rates have always worked like, like a charm. A huge uh, factor was that this was sort of the heyday of the, uh, it's called the analog age, the heyday of the fuel-driven car, of the diesel car, the heyday of uh, you know oil heaters and all the things that Germany did. And it was the time of massive globalization and what countries like China and other uh, developing countries, they needed equipment and machinery, machine tools to, to actually, and they bought them from Germany. Now that they are in a much more mature phase of their economic development, they need less. And China is now for the first time, it flipped the current, it flipped the trade balance in, in its favor. You mentioned energy. Obviously, Germany has been used to Russian gas. Uh, meanwhile, it's been winding down its uh, nuclear power capabilities it's completely, gone. Completely, it's completely gone. gone and now finds itself pretty vulnerable and precarious because it's also shut off russian gas and, and the pipeline isn't working anymore how much is that driving the afd and driving the political instability that's certainly one factor energy policy is one factor the greens insisted on a phase out of nuclear power and the other parties accepted that this is not a fight they wanted to fight because in germany you tend to lose these kind of fights so both Merkel and the SPD, they all favored the phase out of, of, of nuclear power. And it happened this year. It's gone. The last power station was switched off in April. And, and it's, so, it's so wild for ordinary it makes common no sense. sense. It makes no sense. It makes only sense if you understand the history of the debate about nuclear power. If you understand the Green Party was born as an anti-nuclear protest. I do remember growing up in Germany in the 70s. That's where we saw the first the first protests about, you know, there was a protest movement that later morphed into the Green Party. And it's a relig- it's a quasi-religious issue for them. It was not, you know, the, you know, I mean, there was Greta Thunberg criticizing the Greens for uh, for prioritizing the phase out of nuclear over the CO2 emissions. Because what now happens, now that gas is gone and or the Russian gas is gone and the nuclear power is switched off. Germany is now uh, has increased the share of electricity coming from electricity uh, from coal, and uh, especially from brown coal, which is an incredibly dirty uh, version of this lignite. Uh, so, and the the CO two emissions are going up again. So by that account, voters can legitimately be angry with the people that made those decisions because it feels, on the energy point, like a self inflicted, like an own goal because you, the nuclear power would be handy. There was another thing that happened um, that happened earlier this year when the government introduced the domestic heating bill. Now, you're going to have the same coming in the UK as well, is to switch over from traditional gas heating and oil heating systems to 
heat pumps. And heat pumps work very differently from gas heaters. They're, bit, they're more like air conditioning systems in terms of that technology, the way they're made. And uh, the government introduced an initial law that would force every homeowner to uh, replace the heat pump starting in January next year. And uh, now that it's only, there was a, I think, a deadline for 2030 for existing homes. The, the next year was originally only for new homes. They've watered it down a little bit, uh, but this is still a... How much does it cost to do depending it, to, to change on the your house? Depending on the house between, in euros, which is almost the same as pounds, between 20 and 50,000 pounds. And who's uh, paying for that? Uh, the, 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 the owners pay for that. And um, who has 20 to 50,000 pounds? Yeah, especially it's Germans, whose house values are hardly higher than 20 to 50,000. That's been a factor. Now, the government handled this terribly. And that was one, I mean, the FD, the rise in the AFD came sort of in waves. And this was the last wave. And the, the, the mishandling, that's where it came up from like 15 or 16% in support to about 20%. Do you think it's fair to kind of summarize that as essentially left-leaning, idealistic, but impractical policies that have now kind of blown up and people have seen the real world results of them and they don't like them? I would say this is not fundamentally an issue of the left versus the right. It is a fundamental issue of sort of three incompatible parties trying to reach a compromise that is a bad outcome and then managing it badly. And, you know, a policy you know of two two other parties, you know, any two of them could have probably managed this better. Um, for example, had this been Britain or the U.S., you know, they would not have given themselves the same fiscal constraints. A lot of bad policy decisions are taken because you, you impose yourself a financial constraint and then you do the cheapest thing, which is one of the reasons why Germany fell back technologically. I mean, this was a country that was, you know, when I grew up, it was a high-tech country in, in those years. Uh, today, it's a low-tech country. It's uh, you know, struggling with digital technologies. It's not investing into these modern industries, which is why it's become, its dependency on the old industries have become, have become stronger. They are dependent on the old diesel cars. What we think of as the kind of industrial center of Europe, which is Germany, and obviously uh, within that, the car industry is the, is the biggest, is really vulnerable now because they're not so good at electric cars as they were at petrol cars, and it feels like China's overtaken them. To put this mildly, I mean, they were shocked to see that China's now the largest, they came out of nowhere in the car industry. Within three years, China's now the largest exporter in, in, in uh, world car exporter. And the German companies are struggling to sell their cars in, in China. Uh, because uh, uh, that was a big surprise to them. They thought that because it was made in Germany, the Chinese, and the Chinese actually like their own cars. And they are cheaper, and they actually have features that the Germans cannot offer. And that it, the reason for that is that China kind of, this, you know, China is doing, it has a role in the electric car industry that Germany had in the old car industry. Germany owned the supply chain. And so it's not just that the cars were made in Germany. That was almost the minor thing. The, the bigger issue was that Germany owned factories in the Czech Republic, in Spain, and in, in, in all you know many East European countries, Central East European countries, also abroad in Asia and in the United States. And it was basically a giant network of suppliers. They were they championed just-in-time production, so the Germans were basically and they owned the whole thing. Now China owns the supply chain of the electric car, the batteries, the rare earths, magnets, and all these sort of things that matter for lithium you know, the new gold. The Germans have basically said, oh my God, we have to get a battery production and we need to get chips that produce our car industry. So they got Intel to build a factory for chips, but it's still geared towards 
cars, basically. This is not a country that, you know, this is a country that had the facility and the ability to be a major player in the digital, uh, in the digital world and has kind of given up on this. So where does the blame lie for this? I mean, you know, we can talk about these things almost as if they're changes in the weather and they just happen. But exactly. No, can no, we no, make so. the case that actually the kind of whole sort of settlement that was there for those decades was inherently fragile and that yeah. Germany, above all maybe, was naive to think that it would just last forever. That's right. And I think the root of it is what I call no, sort of what I call sort of a system of neo-mercantilism, uh, um, uh, uh, reliance on, on industry for exports and following for a government to follow the wishes of the industry. I mean, one of the reasons is this, these, you, know, you remember the diesel scandal. Mm where the, they, they introduced cheating devices. The reason this came up in the United States and not in the EU was that the EU was not was looking the other way. And the, you know, the EU t testing of cars was, was defunded, basically, and uh, compared to what's happening in the United States. Uh, so the uh, German government helped companies, in this case, indirectly, maybe unwittingly, I don't want to, you know, Infer any sort of you know conspiracies here, but you know at least unwittingly help companies either in this case commit crimes, but uh, also you know help companies you know adjusted its foreign policies according to corporate needs. The foreign policy of Germany was a business-driven foreign policy. It was not driven by geopolitical or other security interests. It was business-driven, and that's still you know this has changed with this government. But that's but been... just to spell that out, the foreign policy was. A kind of maximal globalized world with, yeah. you know, it that worked very well for the its car industry because it had these incredible supply chains that could be relied on from the other side of the world, and so it wanted that to last as long as possible. Germany's model depended on globalization. That type of globalization, which we which we had, you know, I put the period from nineteen ninety to about 2020, mm. that period, and it was already fading in the last in the years uh, running up to COVID. It, Germany was dependent on the Russian gas coming for, flowing forever and on globalization lasting forever and on the digital technologies not to be very important. These populist backlashes, the rise of parties like the AFD, in some way are understandable, angry reactions to just decades of naivety and basically incompetence. That's exactly what it is. That sort of doubling in the size of support is the result of a country's economic model basically running down the ground. You know, if you work for an industrial uh, company that supplies the car industries, you know that your job isn't going to be secure. There are a lot of fears about the future, and rightly so. If you're trained to be a mechanical technician, uh, you are right to be worried because the country may not be able to support enough jobs for this particular highly specialist segment. They're highly trained. So we could see something equivalent to the closure of the coal mines in the 1980s here in England happening in Germany if those car factories cease to function. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Germany has many strengths, but it is not a very agile economy in the sense that when sort of a shock like this happens, there is no tradition. It doesn't have an entrepreneurial spirit. So there is, on the one hand, a battle between the classic left and the classic right in politics. But the more interesting battle, I think, is between the business, the old business and the new business community. And, and they, that's where, they, where, they, where they're going apart. And the political system tends to favor the old system because both the, the left and the right parties tend to, tend to support old companies and, 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 and act in the interest of old companies. I guess the bigger question is what on earth happens next? Because we've, we've, the whole world order that we've been used to for all these decades is built on countries like Germany fulfilling these roles. The irony of the situation is the stronger the AFD gets, the harder it is for governments to solve it because under systems of proportional representation, it is, you know, it is difficult for for government for centrist parties to form coalitions, classic coalitions like one of the left or one of the right. If there are parties like the AfD who are sort of outside the political system, no one would ever go into a coalition with them. So there's the the, the hard left. There's also the, there's the hard right. There's also the the left party, and you know the left party might might disappear. There's an awful lot of problems that party has. But there's a prospect of another left party coming, which is specifically uh, focused on the Russia-Ukraine war. So the party of the left that that uh, anti-NATO, anti-NATO, anti-weapons deliveries for Ukraine, and there is a lot of support for that in Germany. So, so the country has a, the country is really split on this. Uh, I mean, split in you know. Do you have a sense of what proportion of the population is? Has I, doubts I, about uh, I, th I think it's about half. Um, I mean, there was a recent poll suggesting, uh, asking about weapons, uh, the next stage of weapons deliveries of cruise missiles. And there was a majority against, a strong majority against. Now, that is not, that's a specific question. Uh, the other polls that I've seen were kind of in the 50-50 uh, era and weakening 
a bit like in the United States. We saw it started with very strong support and the support is still there, but it's weakening and it's not like it's flipped completely. That's where I see it. But the longer this goes on, the harder it will, the harder it will become. Can you not make a similar argument there that they are seeing the impacts of that policy on energy prices, on dividing the world economy, on bringing on some kind of new Cold War situation with Russia and China, and they don't think it's worth it as voters, and they choose to oppose it? No, no, absolutely. That's exactly the reason. I mean, they, they, they're making the connection between the support of Ukraine and the fact that, you know, they know that Germany is dependent on China and should depend on Russia. And they see that this is a policy or a change in the world environment that is not in Germany's favor. Um, so, you know, voters are not entirely stupid, you know, when they when they vote for the AfD and or when they vote for parties that are that are that are opposing this because they 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 may be dependent on that old structure or they may have known nothing else. So there is a a sense that this is now interrupted and and it is interrupted due to politics and the government is doing something unreasonable by supporting right. uh, Ukraine. So there is a, a, a an electorate for that, and so the there's AfD, a rationale there, there's whether the, you agree with it or not. The AfD captures a lot of that, but there may be now a party on the left by a very sort of maverick you know, politician who is left or who is on the verge of leaving the left party, who may be who may be forming a party uh, of the left, and that party is also on, on opinion polls has a potential of twenty percent of the of the electorate. But what and, sort of populist or I, whether a good version or a bad version, can you imagine what a program might be that might kind of excite people? Is it likely to be more protectionist? Is it likely to sound like, you know, to, to paraphrase Donald Trump, it would be Germany first, it would shed some of these more idealistic ideas and be more pragmatic about energy, about war with Ukraine, it would, I don't know, it'd be shoring up factories or what is the most likely? I think the new least likely vision? is the one that I would suggest, which is uh, which is you know let's, the least likely, the least likely, right. which is the one that you know to say, look, I mean, you know, we're going through a transition. It's going to be hard. We need to remedy the you know bad the, the lack of investment into modern technologies. We should accept that the future lot doesn't lie in machine tools. So we open up the economy with with a sort of you know we deregulate our bureaucracy and let companies be companies. And uh, you know, deregulate their taxes. We may not subsidize them, but we will certainly leave them to to flourish. And you know, the country has enough talent, so they should be able to to figure this out. Uh, this is not going to happen. That's, a, I would say, a traditional centre-right type traditional response. You know, very boring in many ways. Yeah. What I what I'm suggesting, but that that would I think that would work. But it's not going to happen. So if there was a a Trump-like character. Obviously, not with the same kind of you know language, because the you know the, the German that probably wouldn't sit well with the German sort of mindset, but some, but a Germany first approach to industrial policy, something like what Make Gerhard Germany Schröder great again. That's what ultimately what Gerhard Schröder was about. I mean, Gerhard Schröder was. I always thought of him as the him and Berlusconi as the first great European sort of first populists. They were centrist, and you know they were not on the. They, there was nothing extreme about them in terms of their political views. They were just very much pro-business, and I think something like some characters like that could reemerge to say, "This has been a mistake. Uh, this support for Ukraine, our our you know our support for the United States." So I think it would start off with becoming more U.S. skeptic. Uh, I think the Germans were slightly blind. They hated Trump so much that anyone who came after him was good, and they didn't quite see how dangerous for them Biden would be. I mean, first of all, there is the 
this sort of the, the anti-China policy that is really not in Germany's you know, economic interest. If you, if, if, unless you want to change, if you're basically a, in the sort of a no-change mindset in Germany, you want to continue trading with China. And then the U.S. position on China is not, not on your side. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act is a massive program on, on subsidies for companies to leave you know, places like Europe and to, to resettle in the United States. Uh, a program like this uh, has, you know, is causing enormous difficulties for the German companies because a lot of companies are VW, Volkswagen is just instead of investing a massive factory into a faster factory in Germany, which they had planned, they're now doing this in the United States. And there's an awful lot of stuff like that happening. What I would see could happen is that a, a character would come in opposition to the United States, and I think that would probably be the the, the focus in saying that we are a uh, we are not we are not a geopolitical nation. We can't. We are not good at this stuff. Uh, let's trade. Let's be do what we have always done, and let's you know let's 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 you know, let's be friends with our companies and let uh, the needs of our industry uh, dictate what where we stand politically. A pragmatic and, a pragmatic view, and you know if the war ends, we'll be doing business with them. It's not our business who runs Russia. It's it's or who runs China. We're not we're not here to. Uh, so that we are reverting to the prep, the old pragmatism. Uh, that that I think is a possibility. Nobody has dared do that yet because, as 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 you know, in the beginning of the Ukraine war, there was so much such an emotional support for Ukraine that any anyone who said this was immediately kind of you get called pro Putin you, you and would, so on. You would be called names and be called pro pro Putin. And and um, it's quite an interesting. I haven't heard that concept before. It's quite interesting. So that would have huge ramifications for it the would. world it if, would. if a, a party became really popular or even in the government in Germany that was explicitly saying let's just be pragmatic let's make friends again with Russia let's make friends again with China let's try to you know worry about our economy and our energy prices and our industrial heartlands first and leave international adventures to one side exactly that and i think they would probably phrase it the way you do not not in the trump language it, it would be basically a, a, a pitch very close to what you just said um it would be uh, basically what merkel did it's not fundamentally different i mean Mer merkel sort of played you know dabbled in geopolitics but ultimately that was the policy she deployed i mean her her big shortcoming uh, you know that for which you will remember historically more than anything else is the fact that she that this decline this economic decline that we're seeing in Germany now had its root that you know in policies that she she undertook but that didn't have immediate consequences mm. now we always talked about during the eurozone crisis we talked about kicking the can down the road and use sort of metaphors of that sort of nature but that is exactly what happened there everything they did n no problems were resolved it was there was always a long timetable for everything what happens if that doesn't happen, if this current decline trajectory continues, which I guess is the most likely outcome, what do you think happens to Germany and to Europe without a, a strong Germany at its centre? I mean, people often make the mistake when they talk about Europe that they think it will blow up. You know, I always get sort of questions from you know, Eurosceptic British media saying, I mean, oh, this, does this mean they will leave? Does there going to be another Brexit? The bigger danger to the EU is not that it blows up. It's not going to blow up. It's, it's legally enshrined. Have you seen in the UK how difficult it is to leave? And if you have the euro as your currency, it would be 10 times as difficult to leave. I don't think any country can, can do this. The much bigger the danger for the EU is that it becomes toothless mm. and ineffective. There was a whole period from like the mid-70s to the mid-80s where nothing happened in Brussels. It was a period of 
you know, of you know, of of the EU being just where it is and just doing its own business, but it's not ultimately been, been, been you know doing much. And then there was a long period from '85 to uh, to not too long ago where the EU expanded its remit into monetary union and other areas, interior and refugees and other foreign policy now. And uh, uh, but I, you know what could happen is that I mean most of these recent expansion, the monetary union was for real. But much of what the EU did since, I mean, much of what the EU did in this this century, uh, you know, doesn't have much solid ground. So this potential vision, you don't like to make hard predictions, but you're talking about what likely outcomes are, is a little bit depressing. It feels like it's a Europe that is, we talk quite often about the West being in decline, but it sounds like Europe in particular is going to face a tough Future. I think that's right. Obviously, it's going to be a p- tough period. That's that's for sure. Uh, you know, these periods ends. You know, they be, you know countries have gone through periods of decline and then recovered. The UK was an example in the seventies and eighties. This is possible. I can't exclude. You know that we are. You know that we strike at lucky at some point again. But this is going to be a difficult period. And there's also what 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 makes me particularly skeptical is that I don't see anyone who has a an idea. Uh, you know, a bright idea of how to solve the problem, even if that sort of person was only a, a fringe political figure. But that I don't even see that happening. Uh, so the quite you know, most of the political debate is between people who want to subsidize industry and then who who want to who want to uh, subsidize you know green technologies. But there's never a a, and somebody who, who tries to arrest the decline and tries to see how this sort of economic model or how one can get, uh, change and ren- you know, innovate this economic model, uh, reform this economic model. Uh, it's all the same again and again. And, and it's not the, you know, there isn't a left versus right um, uh, axis on which if only this party won the next election, things would get better. That is not the case. But I think that there is a pattern. And the pattern is that there is a decline in the West, in the Western dominance of the world. We see this in our, you know, in the fact that our sanctions on Russia are not really sticking as much as we hoped they would. They have an effect, but they're not they're not what we thought they would do. And that's to do with the fact that the West, we are no longer calling the shots. There's the BRICS, there's China, there's there are many countries that are not on our sides in this world. And the decline of the West, and America is still strong in terms of its technological leadership, but I see a, a, a decline, also a lack of willingness for the US to be sort of to take the role that it used to take. And, uh, and, and the EU being sort of very dependent on the US for its protection, but also dependent on globalization for its economic success, is in an impossible position. And that it hasn't, it hasn't really uh, even started to discuss what it needs to do to, to survive in this sort of new, new world. Hearing you talk about the likely trajectory of Europe, it puts the Brexit question into a slightly different colour. We, all we ever read in the newspapers is the disaster of Brexit and the, the economic cost and the paperwork and everything else. But big picture, is there almost an argument to say we've had our fight, we've had our pain early, and at least in the UK, we are at liberty to make such a new radical economic pivot if we if we want. So maybe we're better off out after all. Except that you don't. Uh, I mean, the you know there would have been one valid and good Brexit argument that I would have accepted. And this is the one which you precisely alluded to. We do Brexit because we we can improve on the economic model. Uh, we can do this differently. Uh, that's not happening. 
I think this is the great tragedy of Brexit, that, that the UK had this opportunity to shift its economy. Its economic model was shaped by the government of the 1980s. It's, you know, with development zones. It's very much geared towards the single European market. That was a big, you know, you probably remember Heseltine and all this, you know, the, the, the Thatcher government trying to really position the UK as the prime location for international investors who are entering the European single market. Um, uh, the Blair administration continued this, this sort of pr pr process of European uh, of, of European business integration, and this was uh, sort of the the business model. The city was the eurozone's banker. I mean, you know, the UK UK didn't want to join the eurozone, but it wanted to be the banker of another currency zone, which is another question of you know this is clearly not a sustainable model either. So on Brexit, you would have thought you would need to change that kind of model, that dependency on Europe for trade, dependency on Europe for you know to act as its financial center. And you know, one could have conceivably thought of the a, a, a sort of a new age, you know, digital model. But the UK still has the same same old rules. I mean, we're still in a you know, it still has the same you know, rules on data protection laws, for example, and many many others. So the UK is. And that's to do with the fact that British governments did not kind of focus on this, given that you know the UK has a, a strong foundation in science and technology, um, just as Germany does. They also do, uh, and one could have used these these, stre these strengths to create to forge a new business model around these these ideas, so and that didn't happen. And and it, it's and and therefore you know therefore the, the discussion is in it's different. That's why we're reading these stories of Brexit being a disaster because you know. It's a, you know, when I remember writing, you refer to my columns that I wrote for many years uh, at the beginning of the of the show. Um, I, I used to write that the, the the economic of Brexit cannot be ascertained; that they would depend very much on what people make of it, and it is possible that it is positive. Um, you know, if you only look at trade, you can always count the cost of trade friction and the, the trade that you're not doing, but you can never count the cost of the opportunities that you actually nurture as a result of have, having a different regulatory regime or having you know a different. Is it too model. late though? It's not too late. It can be done, uh, but it would require again. The, you know, as I as, you know, as I say, I don't see anyone in German politics who actually focuses on the economic model, but I don't see this in the UK politics either. I mean, there's a prime minister who who thinks he can reduce inflation. Uh, or you know the, the the opposition who who basically wants to do the same thing what the government is doing only with different you know with different some terms and with different some, labels with some you know with so, some with some differences but nothing that pertains to this debate you know whatever the differences are it is not essentially about the the, the economic model. If you were a betting man, which of Germany and the UK do you think would will be in a relatively stronger position? in 10 years' time. I would say the UK. That's a good note to end on. Thanks for coming to talk to us, Wolfgang. Yes. That was Wolfgang Munchau, economist, realistic observer of Germany and Europe. His message might have seemed somewhat technical and detailed, but the big picture that emerges from it is clear and pretty sobering. Germany is in trouble. The big structural factors that supported its economy for decades have changed, have disappeared. With decline in Germany will come decline in Europe. And without a new vision, a new energy, most likely will come sclerosis or paralysis. And that is going to affect us all and may well mean difficult, possibly acrimonious politics for years to come. There was a little note of optimism at the end there, that there is still at least a theoretical chance that the UK at least could make use of its independence to forge a different path. But as Wolfgang said, 
there isn't many leaders about who seem to have such a vision. I found it absolutely fascinating. I hope you did too. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.